to welcome to the very first episode of Paradigm Shifts with Dr. Peter Rosen and myself, Aaron Leach. We're going to be discussing on a regular basis as we put this podcast out some of the new research that's coming out, some of the new breakthroughs that are happening, uh, and just a, a change in philosophy essentially in many of the things that we have held to very dogmatically for years and years and years as they come out in new research and new ideas. So our goal for this podcast is to try to create some visibility for academicians, specifically young academicians, to introduce their ideas that others haven't thought of and to try to help redirect people's thinking. So as you listen to this podcast, we're not necessarily going to tell you this is exactly the way to do it, but these are ideas to ponder. These are things to decide, should I incorporate this into my practice? And do I need to change the way that I even view these diseases, these disorders, these issues that I face on a regular basis. So, welcome Dr. Rosen. Thank you. So, I'm going to have Dr. Rosen discuss a little bit about why we're even putting this podcast out and uh, talk a little bit about the foundation uh, that is uh, sponsoring a lot of the research in this podcast. The foundation uh, started in 2010 to be a, a standalone charitable organization. It was started with the support of the Maryland Emergency Medicine Network, whose board of directors decided that the foundation had to be completely independent in order to be successful. And since then, in 2010, what has the foundation been doing? Initially, they started out with a focus on faculty research grants in emergency medicine, and they also funded a professorship in emergency medicine. The board made a strategic decision to move toward a national platform to support academics in emergency medicine. This was uh, their ideal goal. And how did you get involved? In 2014, I met with several of the foundation's directors who were mapping out a strategy for supporting academics in emergency medicine, and they asked if I would join the board. I agreed to do so and and joined the board officially in November of 2014. And so when you joined the board, did you set out any concrete goals? Well, initially, I felt that it was probably futile to try to support both research projects for which there's never enough money and probably to be of any use to research would require a great deal more money than we had been endowed with and also that we probably uh, shouldn't support more professorships that while it was nice to honor people who had achieved that degree of success, I felt that the people who really needed help in their careers were the young junior faculty who were right at the crossroads between choosing a career in emergency academics or splitting off to go into private practice, and that they were at a point in their lives during which that support might make all the difference in the world to their choice. So uh, it became 
part of my goals at the onset to develop the young academic researchers with a promising future in emergency medicine to try to support those departments of emergency medicine that were interested in collaborative research and to help make the academic changes that would help to solidify the field of emergency medicine. And I can say just from being a junior faculty member, even though I'm not one of the sponsored researchers, uh, I agree. Having that support is uh, tremendous. It makes all the difference to have the mentorship, to have someone behind you being able to direct you. So I greatly appreciate it. Um, And I'm sure that the researchers that you've been supporting feel the same way. So over the last three years, what uh, has the board been up to? Well, the first thing we did was to... Uh, hire a, a, a number of consultants to help articulate a national strategy. We formed an advisory board comprised of the chairs of emergency medicine at five very prestigious institutions who had five very prestigious emergency medicine programs. Massachusetts General, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, University of Maryland, University of Arizona and University of California, San Diego. Next, we decided to fund a scholar mentor program at each of those five institutions. The five institutions initially picked the people that they wanted to appoint as scholars and mentors, and the board of directors funded the program for two years. We were able to give each of the institutions a two-year grant of $60,000, and each of the institutions agreed to match that grant. The board and the advisory board have met several times, and we have commenced putting together the skeleton pieces for collaborative research among the five institutions. We've also been attempting to identify specific projects that would be of interest to the five institutions. As of now, we are mainly focusing on the expansion of the Scholar Mentor Program. So how do you, how exactly do you plan to expand the Scholar Mentor Program and how will you choose uh, for the next round of scholars? Well, in the first round, we asked each institution to pick the scholar and the mentor that they wish to designate. In the future, we're going to ask the institutions for two things. Number one, a list of possible scholars and mentors that would then be selected by the board. And two, a list of programs that they wished to see participate in the scholar program and who they felt would bring more prestige and uh, more academic support to the program. And finally, which of those programs will ultimately join the advisory board? So is research another area of focus for the foundation? Well, it is. Uh, We are concerned about the source of research funding in the future and believe that scholars are going to have to not only 
tap into what have been the traditional academic research funding sources, but are also going to have to learn to work with industry. That uh, we see the government predicting a increasingly lower degree of financial support for research in all fields in the future. And this may return us to the days prior to World War II when research was predominantly done by research foundations and some industries, not by universities. We want our scholars to understand how to work with industry, how to work with the classical funding sources, and also how to do research with less funding, the way it has been done in emergency medicine almost since its onset, since we had so few donors and regular sources. We think that uh, ultimately our program hopefully will serve as mentors to other emergency medicine academic programs and that by building this network of scholars and mentors we not only will encourage people for a, a lifetime of academic emergency medicine but make it easier for them to succeed. So that's where we stand at present, and uh, it's a young organization that has a a website and hopefully will attract more attention as these young scholars who are already quite productive in their field become more visible. And the purpose of this podcast is as another means to promote these young scholars and to uh, give them uh, a voice that they can express some of the paradigms that they are addressing, some of the problems that they are looking into, and some of the solutions and advances that they've been able to find. So our hope is uh, over the next several podcasts to be able to uh, expand on some rather large areas of emergency medicine uh, that uh, these scholars are looking into by interviews with them, asking them some of these uh, cha- some of these questions that will uh, invoke some change in the way that we hope to practice medicine in the upcoming future. And we also hope to have some discussions of the evolution of medicine and its changes. What are some of the newer problems that have evolved and how can we suggest possible means of reacting to those changes. To start with, there are major changes that occur in the practice of medicine. We're well aware of the economic and financial changes. We're only too aware of the political changes and we forget that uh, medicine itself has to evolve as its population evolves and as diseases evolve. I remember a fascinating symposium on obesity that I heard at the Institute of Medicine National Academy of Science one year and there had been many predictions that uh, uh, populations were going to grow 
geometrically as they aged and uh, that this would produce uh, uh, all kinds of overcrowding and uh, deliberate uh, problems from too many patients and it hadn't happened and the reason it hadn't happened is that as we eliminated some of the diseases that we thought would expand the population and we have had great success in in delaying death from cardiovascular disease and from cancer and from uh, from stroke and from the uh, other big killers what happened was that uh, a new disease appeared, obesity, and was killing people that the other diseases no longer were killing. So that while we do have to face the problems of overcrowding, we haven't had to face them in the numbers that were predicted. And I think that's a good example of how populations change. Clearly, we have a population that's aging all over the world, and that we have, in fact, uh, significantly altered the life expectancy. In 1950, the life expectancy in the United States was about 65, and it's now probably uh, between 85 and 90, depending on gender. But that's a big difference, and as a result, we have not only more people to care for, but different problems to care for. So unless you're willing to accept that your paradigms of care are changing, you're not going to be able to adapt to the population changes. And we do it because we have to, but it wouldn't be such a terrible idea to try to do it a little bit prospectively and see if we can't come up with some rational responses rather than just survival responses. So as a format, we're going to be bringing you, each time we do one of these episodes, three paradigm changes that we want you to consider for your practice, for your point of view in discussing with patients, discussing with administrators, discussing within your system, three paradigms that we would like you to reconsider the way you look at them. And joined by Dr. Rosen today, we're going to discuss some paradigm changes in geriatric emergency medicine. And specifically, the three things we're going to talk about is a change in the philosophy of care for geriatric patients in the emergency department. We're going to discuss some of the concomitant non-medical needs for geriatric patients in the ED that are often overlooked, and a change in the way that you even work up the geriatric patient who presents into the emergency department. The reason we chose to start with geriatrics is that we think it's a classic example of a problem of evolution of care that we have to react to. Everybody is dealing with the reality that 
our population that we serve in emergency medicine is growing older, that we have many more geriatric patients to care for in our and in everyone else's society, and that the care of the geriatric patient is not the same as the care of younger patients. So for starters, Dr. Rosen, if you want to speak a little bit about the philosophy of care, because throughout medical school, throughout most of uh, residency, uh, we're taught that there's an answer. Once you get into residency, we learn that it's not so hard and fast, it's not so black and white, and that there's a range. And the more you practice, the more you realize that even some of the uh, some of the goals and what we're looking for changes. So could you speak a little bit about how the philosophy of changes when we have a geriatric patient? We are taught that the good doctor always finds an answer and that the good doctor doesn't miss anything, that they are capable of thinking of obscure, rare, and possibly uh, first-time presentation of new diseases, and they're clever enough to understand when uh, they're looking at something that's different and they're not going to miss anything. In part, this is uh, reflected by our notion that the good doctor also is unlikely to be sued for making an error. And I think that has compounded the notion that we must not miss anything. But I think a great deal of our fear of missing something comes from our fear of being scorned by our colleagues and uh, being the doctor who's thought to be superficial, careless, or not terribly bright. I think, however, that the result of this is in part what has caused a major economic burden for the practice of medicine. In order not to miss something, you have to look for everything. And in the process of looking for everything, you spend a great deal of money and you forget some of the principles of diagnostic, which is that there is no biologic screening test that works without losing accuracy because of false positives and false negatives unless you confine the use of that screening test to a population that has a high prior probability of the presence of the disease. As you get to a geriatric population, the paradigm has to shift from being afraid of missing something to being afraid of finding something because the geriatric patient has survived along with multiple diseases. And it is impossible not to find something on a geriatric patient if you search carefully enough. The result is you have to change the question of why is the geriatric patient uh, presenting? More likely than not, the geriatric patient is presenting because there has been an acute decline in that patient's capacity to maintain 
whatever function of life that patient has at present time. In other words, the patient has adapted to multiple diseases, probably has an element of uh, a metabolic disease, an element of cardiovascular disease, an element of pulmonary disease that is relatively stable and now has an acute problem that's not only destabilizing the body because of that acute problem, but it's quite likely to unhinge all of those other stable problems. And the real new goal of geriatric care is to fix the destabilizer before it can interfere with all the concomitant diseases. So the paradigm shift has got to be, I'm afraid of missing something to become, I'm afraid of finding too much. So let me ask you about that because it's very difficult in my position as uh, a young attending who's been out for five years now to uh, consider maybe I just shouldn't look for this. I I find more and more that I regret looking for things, uh, but if I don't find it, I never even knew uh, that it was there. So how do you incorporate the patient's preference in not looking because we have patients we're dealing with and we have their relatives and family uh, friends uh, who often will tell us do everything uh, and the patient wants everything done when I'm fairly certain there's going to be something there but whether or not I can intervene on it is a very different issue. Classically there are three missions to medicine. The first is to cure disease. Point of fact, we can't do that very often, and it's worth doing when it can be done. But the diseases that geriatric patients present with are rarely comparable to appendicitis or an acute localized infection that can be intervened upon and gotten rid of permanently. The second mission is to alleviate the ravage of disease. And that's something that we do all the time. You can't take a patient who has congestive failure and cure them of the cardiovascular disease because you've missed the opportunity to do that and we don't know how to do it anyway. And all you can do is stabilize the patient for that disease and try to keep him from having a recurrence of what is a decline over time of an underlying disease. And this, of course, is a major problem for geriatric patients. As we've already indicated, they probably have a wide variety of problems that are stabilized and need to continue to be stabilized. Patients don't always articulate well what they fear, what's wrong with them, and what they want fixed. What they do know is that they don't feel well, something they can't no longer do that they were able to do fairly recently, and they really most want to get back to that stage of stability. They want to get back to what is their normal life which at age 80 is quite different than what it was at age 40. They don't want 
to get back to running a marathon. They want to get back to being able to walk around their home and fix their own meals and uh, dress and undress themselves and get to the toilet by themselves. Those are more modest goals, perhaps, but they are geriatric goals. And I think that we need to be better as physicians at trying to find out what is the level of performance that the geriatric patient has come in with, how has he deteriorated from it, and how can we return him to that level of performance quickly. The third mission of medicine is, of course, to give comfort. And part of giving comfort to the geriatric patient is the reassurance that he and she will still have the ability to live at a level of function that they have adapted to that is bringing them fulfillment and satisfaction in their lives. You brought up the example of having a, uh, a high pretest probability before you start digging for things, uh, which I think begs the question, do you have a clinical diagnosis for this patient that you're working up with tests? And I think specifically about patients with multiple comorbidities that have congestive heart failure and have chronic kidney disease, both of which will lead to a chronically elevated troponin level, that these patients that are screened with a troponin, regardless of their complaint, will often often have a positive. And what you do with that may have effects on the patient that will not necessarily prolong their life, that will not necessarily prolong or improve their quality of life, uh, but it was something that we obtained as a screening test that now I have a test in front of me that I don't know what to do with. So I think, just to clarify, we're not saying don't look for anything if the patient comes in. and If they come in and say, I have chest pain and it radiates to my jaw and the left side of my arm, I think that's probably an important endeavor. Uh, but if their complaint is a lot more vague than that and you're doing this as part of what you do for all elderly people, then it may not be doing as much good as you may think. I think those are very important points. Uh, the patient example I like to use is the patient who tripped and comes in for a sprained ankle. If you do a cardiac workup on that patient, it'll be positive. If you do a pulmonary workup on that patient, it will be positive. But it's inappropriate to do either of those because what's changing the patient from a stable, compensated, multiple disease entity is the sprained ankle. And therefore, it's inappropriate to not work up the sprained ankle. That's the disease that has the higher prior probability that you want to be screening for, rather than just, I don't want to miss something else that the patient might be having at the same time. And the more you work patients up, the more you subject them to laboratory error, the more you subject them to test performance error, the more you subject them not only to the cost of the workup, but to the complications of the workup and a negative decline in their overall ability to function and in their lives. And that's why the paradigm has to change. 
So that's one portion of it is going from, well, I can't miss anything to if I go looking, I'm going to find something. Uh, I, I remember I had one patient uh, who came in. She was uh, 84, and I asked her if she had any health problems. She said no. I said, you have no health problems that you're aware of? She says, no. And in the back of my mind, I thought, well, we're going to find some uh, because she came in with a very vague complaint of weakness. Uh, But in kind of evaluating this patient's weakness, the goal should not necessarily be look for everything that could possibly cause weakness, but rather maybe a return to the patient's baseline and evaluating what it is that has changed recently. That's precisely my point, that we have to be able to discover what is the level of function that this patient has been at for a while, and what can we find that threatens that level of function, and can we fix it quickly? Because that really is what's going to restore the patient to that level of function, get them out of the emergency department, get them out of the hospital, and get them back into their living circumstances uh, that there is comfort and satisfaction and happiness at that level. Now, we've mentioned a couple times of looking at the quality of life for the patient. How do you suggest ascertaining what is the patient's idea of a good quality of life? Well, part of it is to try to find out what is the level of function that the patient has and what is the level of support that the patient has for a diminished level of function. Do you make your own meals? If not, who cooks for you? Or where do your meals come from? Do you dress yourself in the morning? Or do you have a helper who comes in and and picks your clothing and and helps you get into it? Uh, Can you walk alone or do you need a walker? Uh, Do you need a wheelchair? What, What is the level of function that you've been at? And is it a level that you would like to improve upon or is it a level that has suddenly changed so that you can no longer do things that you have been comfortable doing? For example, I uh, had an elderly patient who tripped on a, on a carpet, fell down and broke her humerus. Orthopedically, it did not require any, any particular intervention other than a sling and a swab. It was not a a terribly uh, complicated orthopedic problem and uh, was going to heal over time without much in the way of orthopedic intervention. But now, this was a woman who lived alone who could no longer do so. Now she could no longer cook for herself. She could no longer clean for herself. She could no longer dress herself. She couldn't even get to and use the bathroom by herself. 
this is what I mean about uh, the kinds of non-medical problems that we have to solve for patients of this age. And that gets to your second paradigm that uh, we were going to discuss is thinking about the non-medical needs for geriatric patients. So the orthopedic injuries are usually the most common ones. Uh, We had a patient that came in uh, that was very fit. She walked a mile every day and uh, was in a car accident and broke her right her right everything, her right leg, uh, her right arm. Uh, she had all non-operative fractures. And when we called the orthopedic surgeons, they said, well, none of this is operative. We'll put her in a sling and, and uh, we'll put her in uh, a splint and she can go home and follow up with us in a week. And we said, thank you very much for your orthopedic insight. However, this patient cannot go home for the same reasons is she had no one in town that was able to care for her. Uh, She wasn't able to do her activities of daily living, and we were stuck in what is unfortunately the endless loop for us now in emergency medicine, which is waiting for inpatient rehab, uh, which she truly needed until she could recover more, Um, but uh, this was not a patient who was going to be able to just go home. She needed a lot more assistance. Yes, and I think that as we have a greater number of these aged patients, we need different resources. More emergency departments are developing caseworkers to be available to the patient at the time of their acute problem. Uh, We need to change our rules so that a patient like this could go directly to a um, skilled nursing home and get the kind of supportive care that that nursing home could give, which she won't need once the fractures are healed. Uh, We've had a law that unless you were in the hospital for 72 hours, you couldn't get to that skilled nursing home. And we've had no service that would admit such a patient. The medical service saying she doesn't have a medical disease that needs our care. The orthopedic service saying we don't admit this kind of fracture. And the patient saying, help. And I think we have to come up with a different answer for these patients. Uh, The emergency department has, in many institutions, developed observation units, but that won't work for this kind of patient either. Uh, We do need a different response, and I can't tell you how each institution should solve this problem. When I was a surgical resident at Highland in the early 60s, they had an intern-run service with uh, an attending of the director of the hospital to which such patients were admitted. And the criterion for admission was that they could have any kind of medical or surgical problem, but it had to be the kind of problem that would have been managed as an outpatient, but 
it was a problem that interfered with their function and they needed new social service problems. So they were kept on this service until they could be placed in a nursing home or in our sister hospital that was a chronic disease hospital. It worked well and the patient could stay there for as long as a couple of weeks, which is hard to do with an OPS unit. And I think that uh, those are just examples of possible solutions, not that everybody is going to select the same solution. So which of the non-medical needs do you feel are most overlooked that emergency physicians should be putting more effort into uh, discussing with patients? Well, I think for the patient, it's to find out the level of individual function. Where is that patient at in terms of the responsibilities of daily living? We, we don't have a quick way of doing that, uh, although simple, simply asking the patient will give you a lot of information. Finding out what is the patient's support system. But the second area that we are very bad at and that we completely ignore is what are the responsibilities that the patient has that are now going to be lost because that patient can no longer deliver those responsibilities. I remember again this lady, uh, um, not the lady with the, the fracture arm, but a similar patient who came in uh, with a minor degree of congestive failure that again was able to be treated comfortably in the emergency department. But when asked what she was most afraid of, she said she had a demented husband who she cared for. And she just no longer had the strength or the ability to care for him. So the answer was, what do we do for that husband? Is he to be sent for with an ambulance and admitted with his wife? Can we arrange home care for both of these geriatric patients? These are problems that I think we're going to have to be able to investigate more quickly and have answers to how we can help provide that kind of temporary help that we never had to think about before. Can you speak a little bit on this? Uh, I, I've had, as I've gone through five years of residency and then now five years of being an attending, my idea of what is unreasonable has changed. When I didn't know much medicine, I couldn't understand why a patient with uh, anginal chest pain that was yet unrelieved would want to go home uh, to be in their own house, to be in their own apartment, to with the potential to die who is fully aware of that and accepting of that. I couldn't understand why someone uh, who needed further uh, evaluation for uh, a TIA wanted to go home because they had to take care of a loved one. Uh, these are some of the issues that over time I've realized these are not these are against medical advice, but they're not necessarily foolish decisions. These are priorities that people decide for themselves that we need to respect. Well, you alluded earlier to what does the patient want. 
And I think we have had a poor notion of finding out what patients are comfortable with. Speaking as someone who is a geriatric person... I've been hesitating to bring that up. (laughs) Your attitude towards death changes. You're not afraid to die. And in fact, your attitude towards life changes that life is not the be-all and end-all that it was when you were 30. Uh, that there are specific things that you still hope to enjoy, there are specific things that you are still responsible for, and you need to exercise those responsibilities. But they're quite different than what they were when you were younger and more active. And we have to uh, find out from the patient what those responsibilities are, as well as uh, what those hope for maintained partial activities for. Uh, I think that a lot of that comes from what we're bad at in medicine to start with, because it takes time, and that's communication with the patient. How much time do we actually have to spend with a patient, as opposed to answering telephones, answering queries, filling out paper forms, many of which are time-consuming and have nothing to do with the patient's care. And I think we have to be able to evolve our care packages so that we can do what's necessary along with all the things that uh, are time-consumptive that perhaps are less necessary. The one thing I still never able to agree with is a patient that needs to go home uh, because they need to feed their cats. And that's because I'm a dog person, but that's my own personal bias. In kind of assessing for patients' needs, uh, I've felt that Talking with family is very important uh, to get an idea, certainly, of their activities of daily living, what they're able to accomplish, because I've found that to be a bit variable. Some patients over-exaggerate what their abilities are when you look at a loved one, typically a spouse, who's able to say yes or no, that's actually correct. However, engaging the patient's needs, I have found family to be less helpful, because the family, in my personal opinion and experience has a very has much difficulty separating the patient's needs from their own needs i think we underestimate first of all the importance of pets to old people and the responsibility for pets is something that perhaps we don't understand because they're easy for us as young people but they're hard for older people but there are many activities that pets demand and they have to be considered as well for our patients we used to have access to more helping services you could call a church and they had a, a someone at the church who would go and feed the pet for that patient, whether or not it was a cat or a dog. Uh, And and again, we have very high demands from family and very low performance for them to be willing to change their lives to do something extra for that patient for even a temporary period of time. How many times have you tried to discharge an elderly patient with an acute fracture to a son or a daughter who says, I don't have room for her, uh, at a time when they have to make room? And I think that... Part 
of that is dealing with the family as a unit rather than simply as a uh, discharge solution. And part of that is the acceptance that we have to develop social service functions to replace what families historically were willing and able to do. Uh, will that occur more in the future? Uh, I think that will depend on the evolution of our society more than it depends on the evolution of our medical practice. But there are going to be pressures for our medical practice. And part of what we define as unreasonable visits to the emergency department are in fact these failures of activities of daily life that don't add up to a medical disease, but do add up to a change in the acute compensated daily performance of a geriatric patient. I think it's very difficult to have a patient come into the emergency department you feel can be discharged but the patient doesn't want to uh, or a patient that you think should be admitted but the patient wants to go home if a bad outcome comes from either of those if the patient suffers death for instance we see that as a failure however if the patient's wishes were to go home they fully understood the risk that they were taking there was appropriate shared decision making is that necessary Necessarily a failure. Well, I think we have to define failure differently, which is what the paradigm shift is. If the patient is willing to die at home, and one of the things that's curious is that over time we've had fewer and fewer patients dying at home, which used to be uh, very common and very desirable. You with your family and your familiar circumstances, and it's an end point that is probably not bad for the family either because they can see it happen. But we don't permit that anymore, and we aren't even allowed to die in nursing homes. We can only die in hospitals. So is failure patient's desires being met or our desires not being met. And I think that's what we have to shift with our paradigm. That fear of missing something is going to lead you to a fear of failure that's the wrong definition of failure. I can have a conversation like this with a patient and we come to an agreement if something bad happens and there usually is a long-lost relative that lives far away, hasn't been in touch with the patient for 50 years, but then suddenly is back in the picture, it can be difficult to describe. And I'll give you the example I had several months ago, which was a 101-year-old lady who came in with a lower GI bleed and had a significant amount of blood in the toilet. I saw a picture of it and had recently been admitted about a month prior for a lower GI bleed. Uh, the patient was not tachycardic. She was not actively bleeding. She had a normal H&H, but was 101 years old and had a lower GI bleed. Uh, we reviewed her chart, and the GI doctors who consulted on her said, we can perform a colonoscopy, but we'll have to put you under sedation, which could kill you. I had that same conversation with the patient again and said, if you, come, if you go home with this bleed, you could bleed to death. 
But if you come into the hospital, you could also catch infection. And if we actually do the evaluation for this lower GI bleed, we would have to sedate you, which has the potential to kill you also. What would you like us to do? And the patient opted to go home. Uh, luckily, there was a lot of family members there to discuss with us as well, and they were all in agreement, but that's not always the case. So had she have come back in or you know, found to be dead in several days, it's very difficult to look at that uh, brief one-liner, 101-year-old lower GI bleed that was discharged home and not say that was a failure. How do we treat our peers or discern these cases in a M&M conference to determine what was the right thing for the patient's view? Well, we resent having to fill out charts, and yet we tend to avoid putting into the charts the information that would make the chart useful. I think that in a situation like this, your only protection is an explanation of what you're doing and why it's acceptable to the patient as well as to the medical system. In dealing with the relative, those are very difficult because it's often the relative who has ignored the patient and who's feeling guilty about it who wants a different outcome for the patient. I remember a patient similar to yours whose son was a physician and who had basically abandoned his mother for almost a decade and now wanted everything done for his mother. And when I suggested that perhaps that would include him coming and spending time with his mother, he said that was impossible. I should take care of her. And when I finally suggested that it was his mother, he finally backed off a little bit from his rage and demands, but not a whole lot. And there are some people who we simply are not going to be able uh, to convince to do what is right. And uh, communication with the record, with the patient, are the most important uh, responses. I found that some of the times where I feel I've done the most good involved very little medicine and a lot more communication, discussion, and a lot more documentation. Cases like this, where we spent a considerable amount of time talking to the patient, I knew in my heart this was the right thing, but my brain told me that this has the potential to go badly very easily. And so I, you can bet that myself and my residents spent a considerable amount of time documenting exactly our conversation in the chart. It took a while, but but in the end, what was the right thing for the patient? Well, I think, again, you have to change your mind about what is the practice of medicine. That is the practice of medicine. And I think it's sad that we have reached a point in our medical decision-making that we can't do what we know in our heart is the right thing for the patient and consider that a medical failure because we're doing what a rational person would have chosen in that position but which standard medical practice would not choose. And 
I think we have to depart from standard medical practice to getting back to what does the patient want, what is in the patient's mind the best for the patient, and how can we achieve that, and how do we protect ourselves as we do achieve it, because our society likes to cast blame. And if someone dies, that's always supposed to have been preventable, even though we all die. In viewing the outcome, the last thing that you mentioned is a paradigm that we need to reconsider is how we even approach the workup of geriatric patients in the emergency department. And I know that personally, when I was first learning, uh, there was no easier patient than an elderly patient with chest pain. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I would talk to them, I would order some labs, and they would be admitted to the hospital regardless of what they said when I talked to them or what their labs showed because that was very cut and dry cookie cutter medicine that was easy to do however that's changed a lot now in that I tell the patient what I'm considering I ask for some of their input and tell them what is likely to happen and make sure that that actually fits with their wishes but how would you suggest that we approach working up geriatric patients differently Well, we've already alluded to the paradigm shift of don't miss anything to don't find what you don't need to find to stabilize. And I think that should be the logic of the workup. Why is the patient unstable today? What changed today that I need to investigate? Then, in the course of the investigation of that problem, you have to understand that you have to cast a wide net and that you can't just rely on a few historical uh, contributions from the patient, but that you're going to have to do more imaging studies than you would in a patient who's capable of communicating more or whose disease has evolved to a point where it's more recognizable. But yes, you still have to find what is that acute destabilizing disease and what is really critical in the geriatric patient is that you find it early on in the disease course. If you can reverse that quickly, then you not only can keep the patient out of the ICU, if not out of the hospital completely, but you probably can extend life by six months to a year. Because if you wait until the disease is easily recognizable, like sepsis, then you've waited too long and you can't fix the patient. That is part of the paradigm shift, that we can't just assume that every patient gets admitted and will gradually get better. We have to find out what is the destabilization, what is the underlying function that is destabilized, and how can we work it up aggressively and quickly to reverse it. 
I think that's a pretty good summary of the paradigms that need to be changed. She said that essentially our style needs to go from I can't miss anything to don't look if it's not related to their acute condition. Our goal needs to change from trying to cure every illness, trying to cure the patient's chronic conditions, to instead returning them to baseline. And that's what the patient perceives as their baseline. And our philosophy needs to change from elderly patients get admitted because they're old to we need to consider their non-medical needs, we need to consider what their uh, priorities are, their preferences, in determining what's going to be the best outcome for their quality of life. I think you've, you've summarized it quite nicely. Well, we hope to bring more of these to you. Uh, we have critical care topics, toxicology topics uh, to ponder, to think about. So these are great for long road trips. These are great for uh, backpacking and camping uh, when you just need to consider how you practice your specialty. These are the things that you won't be able to immediately change with your practice tomorrow because you, a lot of these habits are ingrained. If you're new to emergency medicine, if you're an intern, second, third, or fourth year, you may be able to incorporate this into your practice as you're developing. But for those that have been practicing for a while, this can be difficult to change your habit. Uh, but these are important things that we need to be able to do. We need to incorporate new medicine new ideas in order to take the very best care of our patients that we can. <laughs>